Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. Good morning, girl. This reading comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 32. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is the babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting where Aropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Aeropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and the earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, then that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. Thank you. For the reading and thank you for the worship. I'm just going to move this so I don't have double microphones because double microphones makes me triple loud because I'm pretty loud on my own. So good morning. Beautiful, balmy Melbourne weather. We loving it, right? No, <laughs> people are loving it. Uh, so I've got a question just to warm you up a little bit and I like questions and we'll throw it out there. Who's your favourite apostle? Anyone have a favourite apostle? Anyone going once? Come on. Sorry? Peter. Oh, yeah, okay. We like Peter. He was emotional, said, spoke what was on his mind, bang, just straight out there. Anyone else? Andrew. That's an unusual one. Okay, fantastic. We like Andrew. Why, why do we like Andrew? 
cool, we like it. All right, any others? Sorry? I didn't hear that. Matthew. Okay, fantastic. Yes, Matthew the tax collector. I'm sure he wasn't that popular before he became an apostle. Um, We'll go one more. Anyone else? John. John. Okay, why John? (laughs) John. Okay, well, I'll tell you mine. My favourite's Thomas. You know, the one who, you know, (laughs) Jess goes, of course, rolls a rise. Doubting Thomas, all right? I love Thomas because he was just so out there. You know, he made these extreme statements. He said things like, I will not believe unless I put my fingers in his wounds. And then, of course, Jesus showed him up, didn't he? But he was also the one who, when Jesus was going down to Jerusalem, who very cheerfully said, let's go down and die with him. You know, so Thomas was another one of these sort of like put his heart on his sleeve. But I really like him because he had that sort of characteristic of really putting out the questions, the big questions uh, of doubt and questions that would ultimately provide answers for us. So today, what I want to talk about is how the Word of God is living and active and relevant. And um, just to kick it off, I want to start off in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 12, just to set the scene. No, I don't want to pay anything on my American Express card, thank you. There you go. Oh, and better get my glasses out as well. My one concession old age. Now, I apologise to anyone online because I tend to wander around. I can't stop it. It's just a feature of the way that I talk. So the Bible says in Hebrews 4, chapter, 12, chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation, I'll say that one again, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now this is a really challenging thing because I think most of the time, most people look at the Bible as being some sort of static old text. If it's a physical book, it's a physical book that's usually gathering dust somewhere on a bookshelf. It's not something that's highly relevant. It's something that some old fogies wrote some long time ago, long before we became enlightened and had all this lovely scientific stuff like I'm using right now to be able to read the words that they wrote. We often look at it from that point of view and say, well, you know, is it How relevant can it really be? How much can we really see the Bible in our lives today? And that's one of the things that I love about this passage in Acts chapter 17 that we just read from. You see, what we see here is Paul showing how the word of God is completely relevant even when people have never even heard it before. And I think that that's very relevant to us today because today... It's almost as though the word of God has never been heard before. There's an enormous number of people who have not heard it before. And there's an enormous number of people who attend church regularly, who will still look at the Bible as being something that you open if you must, when you attend a Bible study, or what you hear in a church. And so I want to talk through it, and we'll see how we go. So, 
first of all, there's a bit of context here. So this whole thing was about Paul in Athens. And Athens, at the time that Paul preached there, was like a centre of culture and philosophy. You know, you have all heard of the Greek philosophers, right? These were the people who really came up with a lot of the thoughtful concepts that we know today. But the way that Paul got to Athens was really interesting. Just a little bit before, and you read in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15, you see, Paul was preaching the word in Thessalonica. He was talking about Jesus and saying, he is about Jesus and I want to convince you about Jesus in Thessalonica. And the Thessalonians weren't polite like you who sort of sit there and go, yeah, let's listen to what you say. Instead, they said, let's form a riot and chase you out of town. And I'm hoping that you don't do that to me today. And that's what they did. They literally, the, the, the Jews who were listening to him in the synagogue, stirred up a riot, went out on the streets, found a few people to join them and said, these, this is a troublemaker. Talking about this Jesus fellow, these people are complete troublemakers, let's chase you out of town. So Paul goes with the flow, gets out of town, goes off to Berea. And we read in Acts chapter 17, verses 11, 12, that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. They received the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Fantastic. But the Thessalonians weren't happy with that. They heard that Paul was in Berea and they chased them up to, they went up to Berea and they caused more trouble. He must have really aggravated them. I wonder what he said. There must have been something in what he said that really got up the Thessalonian nose. It doesn't actually record why the Thessalonians were so cheesed off, but they were deeply cheesed off. So Paul had to go to Athens. And this passage picks up Paul after he's arrived in Athens and he's kind of on his own. His friends are still in Berea and they're going to get told that they need to come down and meet him in Athens. And that's why it starts off in verse 16, that while Paul was waiting in Athens, he wandered around and he was greatly distressed by all of the idols that he saw. So that's a bit of context. Now I want to throw out a parallel to you here. I think that Melbourne is a lot like a modern Athens. Not just because we've got a lot of Greeks, but we do have a lot of Greeks, right? It used to be, is it still, is Melbourne still the largest Greek population outside of Greece? So not just because of that, although maybe that's why we have so much good culture and good food. Maybe it's the Greeks who really are responsible for it all. But it's, Melbourne is a city that in many ways resembles what Athens is like according to the Bible. And Paul says that what, what was happening, there were people in marketplaces there were, uh, there were people who he was talking to and reasoning to about the scriptures. And it talks about the idea that he came across two groups of philosophers and he started debating them. Now, I can relate to that. I like having a good debate. But he's in a marketplace and he comes across Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, does anyone know what an Epicurean philosopher is? No? You know, we, we, modern times, we talk about Epicurean as people who like food, right? Food and wine, good stuff. Epicurean philosophers were chasing happiness and they believed that happiness came about um, and they wanted to reject superstition, reject divine intervention, but they were seeking sustainable pleasure. All right? Sustainable pleasure. That's a nice phrase, isn't it? 
I reckon that's a pretty good description for a lot of people today. What do you want? Sustainable pleasure. Cool. All right. Don't want just one-off pleasure. Sustainable stuff. That's why food is so good. That's why, oh, hang on, Epicurean. Um, Now, ultimately, what they were seeking, and I've got to put my glasses to read this bit, is a, a, a state called ataraxia, tranquility and freedom from fear, and apnea, freedom from bodily pain, through knowledge of the workings of the world. Anyone want to become an Epicurean? Sounds great, doesn't it? You know, this is the sort of state that you want to have. But that what they did was they said that you come about this through seeking this sustainable pleasure, this sort of idea of just trying to understand the workings of the world and work your way at it. I guess it does make sense that in the modern world we have Epicuria is sort of related to food and drink because instead of a state of artaxia, we go for a state of intoxication. Anyway, um, Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, they were slightly different. You know, because we know the word stoic, right? That means like the British stiff upper lip. I can't even do a stiff upper lip. I don't know. How do you do a stiff upper lip? I don't want to try. I'm on camera. Um, I just did, but that's bad. Anyway, these people, it was founded, actually, anybody know who founded Stoicism? Give you a hint. It wasn't a guy called Stoic. No. Um, Zeno. Not very famous. Zeno. Um, Anybody name a kid Zeno? That's a good child's name. Anyway, what they believed in was personal ethics informed by logic. So they weren't the pleasure chasers. These are the personal ethics formed by logic and analysis. But what they particularly believed was you didn't want to look too far ahead. You lived to the moment. You responded to the moment. And Stoicism was, of course, there's that... Stoic calm, you know, that, that sort of idea. And that, that was their philosophy about how to approach life. So when Paul came along and started preaching about Jesus crucified and raised from the dead, this caught their ears. They thought, ooh, this is interesting. And I just want to go back to a little passage that it says here in the Bible in Acts chapter 17. And it says that he see, you know, they said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, hmm, he seems to be activating, uh, advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the re- resurrection. And then it says, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was like a council or a court, uh, or a sort of like it was the nobility who sat in judgment. They were actually the guys who could um, pretty much determine death sentences for people in court. Um, really interesting, powerful people. And they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is you are presenting? And I love this. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Not quite, there you go, right, right there. Mm, talking about listening to the latest ideas. Now, isn't that like what we do today? When you watch a YouTube video, what are you doing? You're trying to suck in the latest news. When you get on onto Facebook, what is the thing that we're always looking for? Sometimes it's the connection with other people, but a lot of the times, what are the videos that go viral? Somebody has some sort of insight. Okay, maybe it's a cat video or a dog video, if you like my wife. But 
a lot of the times what, you're in, what you really see is people sharing some sort of quip, some sort of insight, some sort of uh, a thought or philosophy or idea about how to approach life. It could be a diet, you know, here's the latest diet. You know, I love the ones which advocate for binge eating a few days a week and then starve yourself the next, you know. You think, that sounds almost like too good to be true. Um, you get all of these interesting sort of things that circulate around. And a lot of people in our society today, we do exactly the same thing. When people get together, what are they talking about? We're talking about what's news, what's going on. And so you can see that Athens at the time was very, very similar to the world that we live in today. It was a time when there was materially plenty. They had plenty of stuff. Now, they didn't have modern doctors and injections, and they certainly weren't devoting the merits of vaccines. But I'll tell you what, they had good lives and enough time to sit there and philosophise. And really, we are not so very different to them. But the question is, why were they doing this? Why were they so interested in philosophising? I think the real answer is because life is mysterious. Life is genuinely mysterious. You don't really know what's going on. And, you know, you always want to... There's a, this desire deep down for all humans to know, to seek for meaning we always end up seeking meaning. What's one of the things that's most unique about humanity versus animals? And I know some people say, well, humans are just an animal. Yeah, we're an animal with a difference. What's our difference? Apart from clothing, just as well. What's our difference? Our difference is religion. Every single culture Every single grouping of people has always sought an answer to something more than what's in front of us. All those Greek gods that Paul was distressed at seeing the idols, all, what do they reflect? They reflected a desire on people's hearts for something that is more than this life. Almost sounds like a Disney movie, doesn't it? There's a song about that, isn't it? I want something more than this. My, my daughter could tell me about it, but I won't embarrass her. You know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this is expressed when humanity says, or actually everybody, in fact it was the white mice who really wanted to know, we want to know the answer to the question, the ultimate question, to life, the universe, and everything. And this is what drives so much human striving. So much of what we're on about is trying to talk to and figure out what is life all about. Now, some people do give up on it and say, I know what my life's all about. I'll just get as much pleasure as possible, thank you. Hang the Epicureans. They want a sustainable pleasure. I'll just go for it unsustainably and hang everyone else. But this is what it's all about. This seeking, this drive to seek. And so I want to put it to you that we are always seeking answers. That is one of the qualities of humanity. And my, I guess it's my first point to this sermon is we are always seeking answers. We always have questions on our heart, and that's a good thing. It's the way we're designed to be. Yes, it actually is the way we're designed to be. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, in verse 10, the Bible says, 
I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. See, God has designed it this way. God has put eternity on men's hearts. This is what the Bible tells us, that we are sitting there and we are seeking answers because of God. But a lot of the time, we don't know what the answers are. And that's what distressed Paul in Athens. Which leads me to my second point. Let's pick up, uh, I want to go back a little bit to Acts chapter 17, just in case you've forgotten. In Acts chapter 17, it's verse... uh, 22, Paul said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. I love that. It's like I'm covering my bases, all right? We've got all these gods. We've got a God of war. We've got a master God in the form of Zeus. We've got, you know, I don't know, the messenger God. I can't, Hermes, is that right? Messenger God? Yeah, yeah. Any others? Oh, yeah, they've also got the goddess of love. Who's that? Sorry? Aphrodite, that's right. How could I forget? You know, so you've got all these gods. God of war, Mars. No, that's Roman. What was it? Was there a god of war? Sorry? Ares, that's it. I should have known that. Wonder Woman. Um, Anyway, and he says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. It's like, okay, we're not quite sure that all of our gods cover the bases, so we've got one unknown. And so Paul started from that point, which is a really good evangelising technique, by the way, start with where people are at, and said, I'm going to talk to you about the one that you worship as something unknown, and I'm going to start from that point and talk to you. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, and this is the key, he made all the nations. Oh, by the way, that's interesting. From one man, he made all the nations. You know, the Bible many years ago used to be laughed at for the concept that humanity came from a single couple. It used to be fashionable in scientific circles back in the sort of 18th century and 19th, early 19th century to say, that's ridiculous. How ridiculous is that? But you know what's happened over the 20th century and the 21st century? The evidence scientifically all points to the one thing, that we come from one single breeding couple. The Bible predicted it and said it and uh, commentated on it long before Science ever caught up to that fact? Just, just a quick point for you. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So one of the things that is really interesting here is that the Bible tells us that God has organised us to seek and find answers. The Bible says that the way the world is in terms of the nations is actually because of God. God has organised the nations the way they are. 
Have you ever played a game of what if? Have you ever seen that concept of what if? What if Australia had been colonised by the French instead of the Poms? What would we be like? What would it be like? Would we even, actually, would we even be an independent country? I mean, the French tend to hang on to their colonies a little bit harder than the Poms. New Caledonia is still French, isn't it? You know, they tend to hang on. But what would we be like? Look, we'd have better bread. All right? We'd have better bread. But you wouldn't have Aussie rules. Because that, you know, that was out of Gaelic football, Irish, you know. But you still have rugby because the Prince do play rugby. They just don't play it well. Um, Our language would be different. You know, we'd probably speak French. And we'd probably be a bit more militant about our French. Can you imagine that? Aussies actually caring about their language? That would be really kind of weird, wouldn't it? You know, it's, it seems like it's some quirk of fate. It's just a few weeks between the British and the French in making a decision and a claim on Australia. And in fact, even after the British colonised Port Jackson, The French even noted, you know what, wouldn't take too much of an invasion force to knock these palms out and take that land off them. They weren't too worried about the indigenous people. It's interesting, isn't it? But they decided against it, all right? They they had other things. I think they had Napoleonic Wars going on somewhere else at the time. They, They didn't really want to actually overtax themselves by sending a fleet to Aussie. So we are here. Why are we here? Because God organised it that way. God has ultimately put things here. But the Bible doesn't say that he did it for some sort of random purpose. In verse 27 it says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Seek him and perhaps reach out for and find him. Now what does it mean to seek something? Seek. Anyone got a thought about seeking? What do you seek? When you seek, it's a little bit more, it's a kind of intense search, isn't it? Anyone ever heard of a heat-seeking missile? What does a heat-seeking missile do? I don't know why I've gone to military analogies, it just popped straight into my head. Heat-seeking missile searches for a heat signature that's hot enough, and then it zeroes in on that heat signature, and it flies straight towards it. All right? That's what a heat-seeking missile does. It searches, finds, and then heads straight towards it. When you seek something, it's not just a casual look. It's a search. It's a search for truth. It's a search for whatever it is you're looking for. And the Bible says that God has organised our lives and the nations of people such to maximise the opportunity for people to seek the truth. And that sits very well with what we do. We just talked before about everybody questioning and wanting answers. That's actually a form of seeking the truth. All of those questions you've got in your head, sometimes the doubts, that's why I said my favourite apostle was Thomas, they're good if it pushes you to questions because when you come to a question, if you're prepared to search for an answer, that's when you find the truth. And that's actually the principle that God wants us to live by. It's the principle that we actually advocate for science, right? 
You search for answers. You're not searching for confirmation of an ideology. You're not searching for confirmation of a preconceived point of view. You're searching for truth. How does stuff work? What is it made up of? And when you search for God, you're searching for that why. Why is it so? What is actually underneath it? What is behind it? And as I said, this is a unique quality of humanity. There is no other species on this planet. There is no evidence, and you can look at it scientifically, there's not a shred of evidence that any other species is searching metaphysically, spiritually, for any answers to anything other than how do I get my next food? How do I reproduce? That's essentially animal kingdom, right? But we are searching for something more. And we are searching for something more because God's put it on our heart. And the fact that the Bible tells us that helps to confirm that what the Bible says expresses the truth. You know, it also then goes on to say in the same sentence that we'll perhaps reach out for him and find him. That we'll seek him and then perhaps reach out for him and find him. You know, that Jesus was famous for saying, seek and you will find, right? But then he goes, but then it says, you know, not many will find. Just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 7. Why do not many find? Because not many seek. And in Paul's terms here, not many reach out for God once they even get a hint that he's there. You know, um, I, I, it'd be wrong for me to be in a church where Ian Dix is a senior pastor and not, get, not do a movie reference. Um, it's actually a, a required mandate. Um, it's in the unwritten law of the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church that every sermon will have a movie reference, right? So in A Few Good Men, <laughs> all right, the character of Jack Nicholson says what? You can't handle the truth, right? Because people can't handle the truth, he says. You, you can't handle what's going on on our little military wall. And he says to Tom Cruise, who I never liked, so I like Tom Cruise getting told off, even though the movie worked out with Tom winning. I just like this scene where Tom gets smacked around a little bit verbally. Because um, what did he do to our Nick? You know, not a nice man. Anyway, um, I just distracted myself. <laughs> anyway, what is it that the Bible says here? That we'll perhaps reach out for him. And why is it perhaps? Because sometimes people don't want to know. I remember very well when I first began to be aware of God. First 23 years of my life, I was a deep atheist. I was like, there is no God. You Christians believe in fairies. You are pathetic. You know, I, I, I can't say everything that I want to say about the things that I said because if there's children present and that would probably be bad. But I used to say lots of nasty things about Christians and I deeply believed those lots of nasty things because I thought Christians were idiots, superstitious idiots, believing in things that were just some sort of fantasy to make you feel better about that day when you die so that you can potentially believe you're going to heaven instead of nothingness. And I would mock Christians. But I remember as I studied the Bible and I got, you know, I, and why did I study the Bible? Because somebody challenged me. They said, you've got a lot of opinions about the Bible, but you've never actually read it. 
that's pretty stupid, isn't it? And I, I had so much pride that I had to admit that I needed to study the Bible so I could prove it wrong. The thing is that when I started studying the Bible, I began to see the sense in what Jesus was saying. And I did not like it. I didn't like the idea that what Jesus said made sense. When I, I went out and I bought books, I bought Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell, famous atheist. You know, the pursuit of happiness. It had no answers. No useful answers whatsoever. I was like, oh, come on, man, you're a famous atheist. Can't you give me something better than this? I looked very hard for things that I could refute what Jesus was saying and the testimony about Jesus. I looked really, really, really hard. And I couldn't find things that would refute the account of Jesus, his teachings, and his resurrection. So I did what any brave human being would do. I ran away. I thought, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to study the Bible anymore. I'm not going to go to church. So I stopped talking to these people, took up my weekend activity, which was skydiving. For those of you who know me, that was, the time, that was my pet um, hobby at the time, jumping out of aeroplanes with two parachutes strapped to your back. It was good fun. If you ever want an adrenaline rush, skydiving is the way to go, okay? Um, and when I went up that weekend, what hit me? For the first time ever, I was actually afraid of dying. I was like, what if it's true? What if what the Bible says is true? And I was like, well, I know I'm an enemy of God. If what the Bible says is true, I'm an enemy of God. That's not really a good place to be, but God's not real, so I don't have to worry. Yeah, but what if he is? I hated that little plane flight. And if you've ever been on a skydiving plane, the most dangerous part of skydiving is nothing to do with being under the parachute as you come down. It's going up in the plane on the way up. Those planes are horrible. You know, they start them up with a ripcord. It's like a lawnmower. <laughs> you know, they don't really, I'm joking about the ripcord bit, but they really are flaky aircraft. And so what you see here is, for me, I had this debate and I wanted to run away from it. And then there just got to that point where I couldn't run away from it and I ended up praying to God, please don't let me die. And then after I landed, I went, you idiot, you prayed. If you pray, you believe. If you believe, you're stuffed. Well, I'm going to have to go to church. I very reluctantly became a Christian. It was very, very reluctant. Um, I didn't want to do it. And I still thought it was very nerdy and something to be ashamed of. Um, but you know something? In the end, I made that decision to do it. And the reason it says perhaps, perhaps reach out for him and find him, is because it's a very common reaction. If you read the book of Acts further, you'll read when Paul is testifying before a king, Agrippa. And Agrippa pretty much sticks his fingers in his ear and goes, no, 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 I can't hear you. I'm sending you away. Because that's the choice. That's the bit where we have a choice about how we respond to the gospel. And so when we seek the truth, it's important to be open to embracing it as well. This leads me to my third point, third and final point. The ultimate answer is in the resurrection of Jesus. 
So you see here, up until now, Paul's been relatively polite. He's just talked about general things, the nations of men. He's talked about seeking God. He's referred to their own poets. In fact, you know, the poet that he quotes is actually a Stoic poet. When he says, in him we live and move and have our being, this whole concept is actually a Stoic, and he just quotes that just to sort of like be nice to them. But then he sort of seals the deal. And in Acts chapter 17... Verses 29 to 34. Let's pick it up. It says, Paul says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now, pick it up verse 3. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Maybe not a huge number, but a number. doesn't tell you the number. If it was a huge number, they'd probably mention it. That's the way it works in churches, isn't it? Anyway, you know what here is happening here? It's sort of what Ian said last week. The resurrection is not just a part of the gospel, it's the heart of the gospel. It's the absolute heart. Without the resurrection, you don't have a gospel. The whole faith hinges on the historical claim of the resurrection. It's either true or it's not true. Either Jesus is God or is not God. I like quoting C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus didn't give the option of saying, this is just a nice man, a good teacher. Because his claim to be God, his claim to be the saviour, is either insane and sort of despotic, or it's true. He didn't leave us the option of saying he's a nice man. And the claim of the gospel, which is that Jesus died and raised from the dead, it's either true or it's false. And if it's false, then that means Paul was actually a disgusting liar and that all the apostles who were running around were raving lunatic liars or they were telling the truth. That's the fundamental decision that we have to make. That's the assessment that we have to come to. And when you realise that it's true, it clarifies everything and it makes it clear that we cannot ignore the gospel. But in this passage, Paul goes one step further. He says the resurrection is not just the proof of the faith, it's also the proof that God is going to judge the world through Jesus. He says it's the proof, it's the evidence that you need. And the response of the Areopagus, the men of the Areopagus, because as far as we understand, the Greek society wasn't particularly, you know, equality-based. It had this sort of men of Areopagus would go and have a good yak about these things. What did they say? Some of them sneered and others said, hey, let's hear you more about this matter. You see, because some of them, reached the limit of where they were prepared to go with answers to their questions about life, the universe and everything. 
They'd reached their limit and they were like, no, 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 no. You mentioned judgment. We don't want this judgment stuff. We kind of like our lives the way we are. And if you know anything about Greece, Greece was the origin of a lot of the things that we take for granted today as part of our society. A lot of sort of libertine ideas that we've got. Sexuality, the Greeks invented it. So this is the way it works. And you see, it didn't want that sort of stuff. So what is it he says? He commands all people everywhere to repent. That's Paul's simple message. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And repent, change our hearts, change our lives, turn to God. You see, I want to put it to you today that what we are called to do and what this passage tells us is that it is good for us to be curious. It is good for us to question. It is good for us to seek answers. It's the way that God designed us. It's the way we should be. And it's even okay along the way to look at absolutely everything, including the Greek gods. Oh, have a good fun. Have a look. Find out. Examine. It's also good to look at the world and what's going on. Because when you look at the world and what's going on, the rise and fall of empires and nations, you know what you'll also see? The hand of God at work. Because the Bible tells us that God is the one who's ultimately in control of the fate of the nations. And then it tells us to look at the resurrection of Christ. And if you are here today and you aren't convinced it's true, look into it. That's my challenge. Show some guts. Look into it. What have you got to lose? In my experience, you'll find the evidence and the answers that you've been looking for. And if you are here and you do believe it, there's a lesson here as well. Learn from Paul. Learn from Paul about how to present the gospel to a world that simply does not know enough about it. We do not know enough in our world People are lost, that's why they're seeking, that's why they turn to YouTube, and a lot of the times what they're turning to really is rubbish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the example of Paul preaching to the Athenians. Help us to be inspired by what we read. Help us to have insight by what we read. Help us to have insight into the world around us. Lord, we thank you that you've placed curiosity and questions on our hearts. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to seek the answers and when we find them, to embrace them. Lord, I pray for this world that we're in. We're in a community that doesn't know enough, a community that is often helpless, a community that is often in distress and divided by ideology, by personal characteristics, race, gender. We get divided. We fight with each other. We lose sight of what really matters. Help us, Lord, to be people that bring peace through insight and truth. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.